Thanks for joining us here for the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The public is being asked to turn out at a meeting tomorrow night at Alia Manuel Elementary School. It's to begin the process to select members of a community group that state and federal regulators mandated to deal with the Red Hill water defueling and shutdown. So what makes this group different from others formed? Well, the military screened members for an earlier group, and this time the EPA and the State Health Department have made sure the community selects who will serve on it. In town for the meeting from the Pentagon, the Navy's Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Environment, Karnig Ohanesian, who signed on to the 2023 Red Hill Work Order for the military. This is the Community Representation Initiative meeting on Thursday night at Alia Manu Middle School. And the reason it's important is that this is a forum that is the direct result of public comments to the Environmental Protection Agency under the 2023 consent order, which covers defueling, tank closure, and safe drinking water. It is in response to the public comment period that asked for a forum where self-selected community members could come and share information and improve the information flow on these activities that I mentioned and to make sure that we get the kind of feedback that would be helpful to make sure that we do our work in a collaborative way. It is the first meeting. It's very important to me to make sure that everyone can notice that this is really important. I am the Deputy Assistant Secretary, and this is important to the department. And I want to make sure that we have a great participation, great turnout, and a great forum is convened. It is the first meeting. Subsequent meetings will be more of the actual substantive work. But this one is important because the community will self-nominate and self-select representation on this important forum. And what's the timetable? How soon could you stand up this group? The timetable is very rapid. So within a matter of week, depending on how the community wants to proceed, of course, in the nomination and selection. But the idea is to form it rather quickly because then the meetings are to happen twice every quarter. And this is in addition to the larger quarterly public meeting that is under the 2023 consent order. So I think it's going to happen fairly quickly, pending the community deciding how fast they want to, you know, self-form the group. And what kind of assurances can you give that this group will be heard? This is a consent order that we have entered into. I am a signatory, and the provision is in there for precisely the purpose that you are mentioning, which is we seek input, information, and expertise from members of the community that we might not have. And the idea is that if we put all of our heads together, then we can uh, proceed forward in a way that's that's best. This is not the only forum like this that we have in, in different parts of the country for some uh, very difficult challenges, environmental challenges. And so we are very well experienced in being able to convene a forum like that. Here, the difference is in the first time in my memory, this one is going to be self-selected, which is fantastic. And we really are looking forward to getting the expertise and the way in into the work that we are going to be proposing ultimately for regulatory approval. I don't know how else to encourage participation other than to say that I am personally dedicated to making sure that this forum succeeds. That is why I'm going to be at this meeting and that is why I'm going to be participating in the subsequent meetings make sure that we as a department are receptive to the information that we are getting from the community and that we are transparent in the information that we are sharing with the community. You know, we do know that the military leases are coming up, you know, across the state. And, you know, people want to make sure that if those continue, that there will be adequate commitment on the military's part to clean up whatever messes are created. We are committed to the safe and expeditious closure of the tanks at Red Hill, that's for sure. But writ large, we are also committed to environmental stewardship, and that is also integral to our advancing the Department of the Navy mission. It is not only restoration uh, that you might think of in terms of cleanup, but it's also conservation, it's protection, it's uh, natural resources, cultural resources, there is compliance. There is a very sophisticated and large environmental program in Hawaii, which is another reason why I'm here, is to make sure that our work continues 
and continues well. Uh, we do support, for example, the shipyard infrastructure optimization. Uh, there's a lot of environmental work that we have to do and should do uh, to make sure that uh, that is going to happen in a responsible way. Uh, we support Pacific Fleet in their at-sea training through consultations, for example, under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, Endangered Species Act, and other statutes. So that is another reason why I'm here is to make sure that all of these efforts that we have going on that you might characterize as environmental stewardship, that all of those are happening to the best of our abilities. And if there are any uh, places where I can help, any obstacles to uh, overcome, any uh, support from the Pentagon, that I would be able to do that. You know, I was recently able to uh, go out to Schofield to observe the uh, efforts uh, with the Natural Resource Program there with the seed bank and the teams that are sent out to help with the you know restoration of, of some of the areas near Makua in the Waianae Mountain Range and then also on the Big Island at Pahakaloa. And so there's good work being done there, and I know that is funded by uh, the military. But is there anything else that you can share as far as the shipyard and, and that construction, since you know we are hearing more and more about that every day? Uh, I'll start with the shipyard. So there is a dry dock project, and as part of that project, we, just like every uh, a project with uh, environmental issues to consider. We did consultations, formal and informal, with stakeholders, including regulatory agencies. And one of the things that came up there was invasive coral in Pearl Harbor. We worked with, at first, the National Marine Fisheries Service, but expanded that to other federal and state agencies. And now there is a team that's pulled together that is looking at what to do about that. There is mitigation that we will do uh, to handle some of that invasive coral, but there's more than what the mitigation program or project will address. And so we're working to figure out, okay, that's fine. In support of the shipyard, there's a project, but more writ large, what do we do about eradicating that invasive species in Pearl Harbor? So I'm excited about, you know, here's an example of a project precipitates an activity that then can turn into something larger and more beneficial. I believe um, the efforts at the Army base, I think you fund to the tune of $5 million a year. Will there be additional funding then set aside for the coral? That's correct. And that's one example. You may have heard of a program called the Readiness and Environmental Protection Integration Program. This is a program that is managed by the Office of the Secretary of Defense. It is a competitive grant program that is appropriated by Congress. And the idea is exactly what it says, to integrate military readiness activities with environmental protection. We can do and are doing work, in this case, with the Department of Land and Natural Resources here in Hawaii for some very exciting projects on coastal resilience and forest resilience and other natural resource conservation and water protection and restoration projects. So that's one example. We are look, always looking for additional uh, partners and projects that we can work with to apply to these grants and secure project funding for conservation work, proactive conservation work that is helpful, of course, to the environment and to the community and also to advancing the department's mission. And is there anything else that's on your radar as far as environmental impacts and that shipyard project? Not in particular. It is a large program, so our environmental planning is a larger whole. That was one project, but there will be other proposals. And as those mature and they are ripe for environmental analysis, uh, we will do that in consultation with stakeholders to include the community and the uh, regulatory agencies. The National Environmental Policy Act in particular, which is an umbrella statute that makes sure that the public comments on proposed actions before a decision is made. And there will be, if the shipyard infrastructure optimization uh, program continues with the support of Congress, there will be a lot of environmental planning work and consultation work that will happen on the different projects that the Navy proposes. That was Karnig Ohanesian, the Pentagon's Navy representative, who will be at tomorrow's meeting to create a community advisory group. It's required under the 2023 Red Hill Defueling Work Order, agreed to by the EPA, State Health Department, and the military. The public meeting will be at the Aliomanu Elementary School from 5 to 7 p.m.
Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Third places are the community you build outside of your home, school, or workplace. These are the places that can try to help rise up the folks that gather there and provide really critical, sometimes life-saving sources of information for communities. I'm Anthony Brooks. How third places strengthen community and how to rebuild those that were lost during the pandemic. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. get back to the conversation that we had yesterday afternoon with Carnegie Ohanessian. He serves under Meredith Berger, Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy, Installations, and Environment, who we have had as a guest uh, in studio on the conversation. We asked him about environmental concerns over the military expansion in the U.S. territory of Guam, with some 5,000 troops being relocated from Okinawa, some $11 billion in projects are planned for Guam and the Pacific. Guam, by the way, is about the size of Molokai. Earth Justice is appealing a decision to allow open pit burning of unexploded bombs and other hazardous material, a practice outlawed in the U.S. There's also construction underway to build 17 firing ranges near Toragi Beach on the northern coast. In full disclosure, I am from Guam and for a time lived on Anderson Air Force Base. Is there anything else you can share with us about the projects that are going on in Guam? I know when Meredith Berger was here, she had just returned from the opening of the Marine Base there, the General Blas Marine Base. I know the community there had some concerns about the firing ranges and the questions about open pit burning. I have not been there recently, but I am aware of those couple of uh, items that you raised. On the matter of the firing range, we do have extensive consultation that we have conducted with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And if there is additional information that informs their regulatory, what's called a biological opinion on the uh, construction activities that we have going on there, We are always happy to engage in further consultations and discussions, whether with the regulators or with the the public, in understanding, better understanding, in particular, if there's something that a constituent wants to bring to our attention that they may feel that we don't know. So I don't know the specific items that have been raised recently, but uh, this has been a matter on the public consciousness for a long time, and we just want to make sure that we continue engaging in discussions to make sure that our work is proceeding in a way that is protective of the environment. On the open burn and open detonation policy, the Environmental Protection Agency and the Guam Environmental Protection Agencies are interested in uh, figuring out ways of managing that. And we do have our own expertise from a safe disposal point of view. So all of these views will come together to come up with uh, policies and guidance that are protective. I don't have a final rule or regulation that I can point to, but I can say that uh, this has become an important issue that we are trying to figure out together on the best way to move forward. Because Guam, you know this, is is a World War II battleground, and there are items throughout the island, and it's important to be able for us and for the uh, government of Guam to be able to respond in an expeditious way that's also safe. So we have to figure out the best way to do that that is protective. Okay, and I know, you know, they have concerns about their aquifer as well, you know, near Anderson Air Force Base. And, you know, I guess that would be, I guess their Red Hill, right, here in Hawaii, we're concerned about, you know, our drinking water. And they have those same concerns, too, with the installation there. And we do as well. Our priorities really are shared goals. We do want to protect the environment. We want to maintain and protect and restore drinking water sources, as well as distribution and provision of drinking water to families, to communities, to our sailors, Marines, our neighbors. And we are part of the community, and we want to be the, as good a member of the community as we can be and as good a neighbor as we can be. So these are shared priorities that we will continue to work very hard to make sure that we protect. Do you plan a, a trip out there anytime soon? You were Meredith? 
Well, now that you're mentioning <laughs> it, it's sounding like a very uh, nice invitation, uh, and I would be delighted. Uh, right now, there is a lot of work going on about uh, recovery, too, from, oh, the, from the hurricane. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, the northern um, end really got hit over there. Yeah, yeah, so that I'm not as much involved in, but as that proceeds and uh, the work that I am involved in continues, and by the way, that REPI program that I mentioned, Readiness and Environmental Protection Integration, mm-hmm. that's got some good work going on on Guam, too. And we're looking at other programs as well, such as the Sentinel Landscape Program and other conservation work that we can do together on island to protect the environment and also you know, restore habitat, make sure that the ecosystem is thriving and resilient. I just want to reiterate the importance of the Community Representation Initiative it will be a success to the extent that we do get participation by the community which brought this to our attention and we agree that this is a fantastic idea and fantastic forum. So I want to leave your audience with, uh, with that. I want to plead to your audience to make sure that there's good participation there Thursday night. You know, even longer, there's an awful lot of work going on in the environmental arena, which is in my portfolio. And I look forward to all of those advancing at the same time. And as the successes come and as we improve conditions, whether restoration, conservation, stewardship, natural resources, cultural resources, uh, historic properties, while we are advancing the military mission for our sailors and Marines, for Pacific Fleet, for the Marine Corps, for the commands that are here, there's just an awful lot of work that we can do together that is beneficial from the point of view of the environment, community, the people, and the military mission. That was Carnegie Ohanessian, the Pentagon's Navy representative, who will be at tomorrow's meeting to create a community advisory group. It's required under the 2023 Red Hill defueling work order agreed to by the EPA, State Health Department, and the military. That public meeting will be at Aliomano Elementary School from 5 to 7 p.m. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. We have our Mano Minute coming up later in the show, plus a story about the Tahiti petrel. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about native birds. Hawaii is home uh, to two native raptors. One is the uh, Io, the Hawaiian hawk. They're found only on Hawaii Island, but based on fossil evidence, they once thrived on Kauai, Molokai, and Oahu. Their diet includes insects, birds, and rodents. Their habitat includes forests, agricultural lands, and some urban areas. They they primarily nest in ohia trees and produce between one to three eggs a year. The other native raptor is found on all the main Hawaiian islands from sea level up to the 8,000-foot level and uh, makes its home in forests and grasslands. Unlike the Hawaiian hawk, little is known about this bird's breeding biology, uh, but it is uh, one of the uh, makua, or ancestral spirits, uh, revered by native Hawaiians. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for the English and Hawaiian names of this other raptor. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HVR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. Today on The Daily, when Hunter Biden enters a guilty plea today in a Delaware courtroom, it will mark the end of a years-long federal investigation that many Republicans believed would put the president's son in prison 
and put an end to the Biden presidency. We look at why none of that has happened. I'm Mike Labarro. That's today on The Daily from New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Did you miss the latest edition of The Conversation or Fresh Air? Sometimes you just can't listen to your favorite show when it airs on HPR, but you can listen to it on demand with our free mobile app for your iPhone, iPad, or Android. It even integrates with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, so you can listen hands-free in your car. Get the HPR app in the App Store or on Google Play. so-called monster home on Maui is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Paula Dobbin is on the line today to talk about a structure in Napili that's been advertised for eight to $20,000 a night. Good morning, Paula. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so, so tell us about this controversy that's swirling over there. Well, this has been going on for a number of years now, but uh, the the home is now finished and is being advertised as a luxury uh, vacation rental. The problem is, well, there's there's multiple problems, but essentially the developer got an exemption from the special management area permitting process. So he kept the size of the structure under 7,500 feet to avoid having to get an SMA permit. With SMA regulations, you know, there's more public scrutiny. It has to go before the planning commission. There's an environmental review. So he avoided all that by keeping the size of the house just under that 7,500 foot square foot limit. But, you know, many people in the community felt that this house was an eyesore, you know, it was gargantuan in size, it was out of character for the neighborhood. So they've been fighting it for years. Um, and it's gone before the Maui County uh, Council, various committees several times. There was calls for an investigation of why the county allowed this to happen. Anyway, all of that is still percolating. Um, but now that the uh, developer has actually advertised the structure as being, you know, available for rent, uh, the county is now saying, like, no, like you can't do this if you if you advertise it and try to use the property for a transient vacation rental. We're going to come after you with zoning enforcement. And so that's kind of where things stand right now and in, so, in a nutshell. So share with our listeners exactly how big is this house? It's just under 7,500 square feet. It's 45 feet uh, tall. It, you know, if you go to my story, you can actually see the advertisement that lists all the amenities, you know, eight bedrooms and many other things. So, uh, you know, it's it's a very large structure and it has many luxury features and things like that. Well, it, it's interesting yeah. that Maui is is dealing with this because, you know, the, the county there was at the forefront and doing things, uh, you know, that the other counties weren't doing, you know, Honolulu and the Big Island. Uh, so, you know, we, we were always looking to Maui to see, you know, what was working and what wasn't. Well, I mean, after this controversy erupted, uh, the county did pass um, a new zoning code for the Napili Bay uh, Civic Improvement District. So they recognize that what happened here was wrong. And so they they do have new zoning in place that says, you know, that the buildings can't be more than two stories high or 30 foot, 30 feet in height and things of that nature. And that if you are going to use a home as a special, as a um, short-term rental, you have to get a special use permit. So they're, they're trying to like, you know, set it up so these things don't happen in the future like this. Um, but but people are still really enraged that this thing got built, and you know there's still calls for it to be uh, torn down. I think that's probably unlikely at this point, but it'll be interesting to see if the county does, you know, start doing spot checks and inspections on this place, and if they do actually start fining the developer. He could face an initial fine of twenty thousand dollars, and then ten thousand dollars per day. Um, until the problem is corrected. So they are kind of substantial fines. But on the other hand, he is advertising the home as, 
you know, for rent for $85,000 a month. So, you know, maybe he can afford to pay the fine. Well, what did he say about the advertising? I wasn't able to actually interview him. I, I talked to his attorney um, and, you know, he says that this, you know, this um, structure was built before these new zoning codes went into effect. So he has every legal right to rent his house out as a transient vacation rental. And if the county, you know, continues to have this stance that it's illegal, he's hoping that through negotiations they can reach some kind of agreement and that the structure can be grandfathered in. Well, I know here in Honolulu, you know, they are always looking for what is it actually being used for at the time, you know, but that requires then, you know, a whole bunch more evidence that they've got to present, you know, to show that the actual use goes against zoning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm not exactly sure how they're going to carry out the investigation, but, you know, they, they did say that they will be collecting evidence and uh, we'll just have to see where it goes. Okay. All right. Another... Uh, well, more monster home drama. But thank you so much, Paula. Yeah, thank you, Catherine. Take care. We have been talking to Civil uh, Beat's Paula Dobbin. Look for her story at civilbeat.org. can Hawaii learn from Nepal? Well, elevation studies for one. HPR reporter Catherine Kluwit-Pactol joins us today to talk about an opportunity that Maui College students got to take part in recently. Good morning. Good morning from Molokai. Yes, so, so tell us about this trip. It sounds like an incredible opportunity. Dr. Buti Rai and four Maui students spent three weeks in Nepal over the summer and they experienced some of the highest altitudes in the world at Mount Everest and conducted scientific research on the effects of altitude on the human body and, and other uh, physics research that they plan to publish in a paper later this year. And Dr. Rai is a physicist and University of Hawaii College, uh, Maui College uh, Associate Pref- Professor of STEM, which is, of course, science, technology, engineering, and math. And he's actually from Nepal. So it was an amazing opportunity for these students to learn from him and from the country. And he said he's never been to about 90% of the places that they went because a lot of places in Nepal are only seen by visitors, by tourists, because of the economic limitations and cultural norms of the country. So the, the trip was dual purpose for both cultural exchange between um, Nepali residents and and these students from Hawaii and scientific research. So Dr. Rai is exploring the effects of altitude on the human body. And um, here, Dr. Rai explains the trip. We reached up to 14,000 feet, but our goal was to reach to 18,000 feet, but was not possible because of the altitude effect. Then after we climbed down and we reached to one of the lowest altitude place in Nepal, because my job was to scan the altitude and do some physics experiment, how I can compare those data with the Hawaii altitude. And then after we lived in community homes, we ate their food, we lived in their homes, we shared our cultural values, we sang Hawaiian songs, and we listened to their song as well. You know, the altitude sickness he talks about, I mean, that's a real thing. I haven't had any issues myself at Mauna Kea, but I know people who have. For sure, and it's pretty well studied, but I think um, what they're looking at comparing Hawaii with Nepal um, is is an interesting angle. So Nepal's altitude ranges from near zero, like Hawaii, to Mount Everest Peak at more than 29,000 feet. So Dr. Rai is looking at comparing the data from Nepal to the same elevations in Hawaii, so from sea level to Mauna Kea's peak, which of course is nearly 14,000 feet. And Maui's Dustin Paulos was one of the students who went on this trip. So many wonderful, awesome trips getting to be in places, some of the highest places, so even that Himalayan range and at the base of Mount Everest, known as the top of the world and going to the pyramid lab and being at the highest lab in the world. Just a lot of these parallels and contrasts that 
we got to experience once in a lifetime experience living in sea level and being at the top of the world it was kind of emotional and breathtaking. Yeah, I'm jealous. I wish I could have gone on that trip. I know. Um, so Dr. Rai wanted his students to experience this, uh, how high altitude feels firsthand. And they really got to do that. Some of them experienced severe headaches. Others described it as feeling like you just couldn't take in enough air and just getting really fatigued. Um, during the trip, the students also visited cultural and religious sites. They met with Nepali scientists and officials. They traveled around the whole country. It really sounds, uh, like you said, just an incredible experience. Um, one of the things that the students reflected on that was really interesting to me was the pollution of Nepal. And so we, here in Hawaii and uh, many parts of the world, we have this understanding of the need to keep our resources clean and really protect the environment. But they said, the students said that there, it's not really part of their culture. And so they talked about the lack of sanitation waste management and how it was really kind of sad to see this beautiful country that's so rich in, in natural beauty um, sort of not being taken care of in the same way that we understand here. Um, but Paulos also noticed that food sovereignty was really strong in the country. So he noticed many residents growing their own food, which was exciting for him to see. And one of the most memorable parts of their trip was being invited to stay in the Sherpa homes. Um, Risa Christofferson is one of the students who went and talked about how special it was to be welcomed to stay with them. There was a major communication barrier, but we both spoke aloha in that way. We couldn't actually talk to each other except through our professor, but the same type of hospitality that we would, you know, give people visiting us here was the same exact aloha that was reciprocated over there. So super thankful for, you know, being able to go there and be greeted by people of that place and so thankful for that opportunity that they were able to just open their homes up to us. That was very special. Yeah, what a great, great uh, experience for those students. For sure. And Dr. Rai was talking about how they were always finding similarities between Hawaii and the Nepali cultures. He talked about his goals of having the students find these meaningful interactions with the community there. Out of our 22 or 23 nights, about four nights, we stayed in family homes just because one of my goal was to introduce my Hawaiian student to the culture of families, how the Nepali people live their life in villages, towns, and high altitude places. So everywhere they went there, they found something like in Hawaii. Every time you serve the food to the guests first, once your guests are happy, and then after you start eating as well. And everywhere they went, the Nepali people welcome to them, the families welcome them with their own type of leaves. And here in Hawaii, we have the leaves made out of the flowers, mostly, very special type of flowers. But in Nepal, either they have leaves made out of the cloth, a cotton and silk, or from the marigold flowers. That's terrific, you know, that cultural exchange and being able to do it um, with Dr. Rye. For sure. Uh, it sounds like it was rich in, in the cultural side as well as the science side. So it'll be really interesting to see what they find as far as their research um, comparing those altitude uh, studies and the data that they collected and working with some of the premier scientists of, of high-altitude research. Um, sounds really interesting. And, you know, when they came home, the students talked about how incredible this trip was, but it also made them just really appreciate their home and the luxuries that we have here in Hawaii and how special our, our islands are. And so I think that's one of the really amazing things about travel is just being able to come home and have this new appreciation for where we live and the way that we take care of our islands. Well, we often hear about, you know, when you go to the big island, you can be, you know, surfing, uh, you know, in the morning, and then you can drive up to Mauna Kea and be in snow. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, I, I think, you know, it would just be really interesting to see uh, what their research um, uncovers. And when is it uh, completed? When is it, when's the plan to release that? 
So they're talking about spending the next six months or so looking at the data and analyzing and reviewing what they found. So they did um, studies not only on the effects of altitude of the human body and uh, how it makes us feel, the oxygen levels in our body, but also Dr. Rye talked about being able to possibly offer recommendations for people um, who are going to be traveling at high altitude and how that they can help acclimate their bodies um, based on the studies he did with the Sherpa people and their how their bodies have acclimated to that high altitude. So it will for sure be interesting to see. Well, someday I hope I can go to Nepal. But thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful week. All right. You too. That was HPR's Catherine Cluett-Pactel with a story about elevation research underway in Nepal and what we can learn here in the islands. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and we have got a little sandpiper for you today whose rattling call gives you a clue to its name. With calls from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the Xenocanto University of Hawaii at Hilo, Professor Patrick Hart has this week's Manu Minute. Akekeke, also known as ready turnstones when you're not in Hawaii, are medium-sized sandpipers. They're about the size of a mina bird. You can often see them foraging in small flocks, usually along rocky shorelines, but also in mud flats, fields, and lawns. Our birds in Hawaii are in their drab winter plumage, which includes mottled brown backs and white breasts with a very noticeable black bib pattern below their chin. Their bright orange legs set them apart from other shorebirds you might see. Also, if you look closely, you can see a slight upturn in their bills, which, as their English name implies, seems to help them turn over stones in search of insects and crustaceans. Their Hawaiian name, Akekeke, is similar to their call, which sounds a bit like kekekeke. See if you agree. By late April and May, you might notice that most akekeke have molted into their breeding plumage so they can be more attractive to the opposite sex. They have a beautiful black and ruddy or red-brown pattern of feathers on their backs and striking black and white patterns on their face and breast. Our akekeke make a non-stop migration across the northern Pacific to Alaska, a flight which likely takes them three to four days. Like many shorebirds, they spend the summer on breeding grounds high up in the Arctic to take advantage of abundant food resources during the long Arctic summers. The males and females arrive at about the same time, set up very exclusive territories in the tundra to keep out other akekeke, and they build their nest in a scrape on the ground. Both parents feed and care for up to four keiki in the nest, and if resources that summer are good, and they manage to escape predation by foxes or jaegers. The juveniles will get together in small flocks to make their first trip to Hawaii by late August, with most adults arriving a week or two before that. Our akekeke are considered to be an indigenous species, meaning that they're found naturally here as well as other parts of the world. The worldwide population size was recently estimated to be about a half a million birds, and unlike many of our other native bird species, populations of akekeke appear to be relatively stable. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering nature tours on Hawaii Island with adventures including swimming in private waterfalls, Mauna Kea stargazing, and exploring active volcanoes. More at hawaii-forest.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we'll continue our conversation on artificial intelligence and chat GPT. We'll find out if ChatGPT will in fact disrupt humanity to the point of extinction or just another tool for everyday use. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
And now it's time to swoop in with the backyard quiz answer. Earlier we mentioned Hawaii has two native raptors. One is the Hawaiian hawk. The other is a bird whose numbers were once abundant on Oahu, but is now listed as uh, as endangered here. That's in part because of brightly lit highways like H3, where it has had a number of collisions. It also has had an unfortunate uh, has a unfortunate hunting instinct that causes it to dive toward automobile headlights. They also build their nests on the ground, which makes their eggs and young vulnerable to predators like rats, mongoose, and feral cats. In recent years, it's fallen victim to a mysterious illness uh, called sick owl syndrome which may be related to pesticide poisoning or food shortages. However, the good news is they're not as susceptible to avian malaria as other native bird species. And if you're wondering who we are talking about, that would be an appropriate question because we are talking about the pu'eo, or the Hawaiian short-eared owl. And congrats to our winner, Isabel from Kauai. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea uh, you'd like to share with us, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. For the first time in 40 years, scientists have discovered the burrow of the rare Taio, or Tahiti petrel, on the island of Tutuila in American Samoa. The burrows were founded by researchers from the Hawaii-based organization Archipelago Research and Conservation, or ARC. They shared a video of one of their hikes up the remote mountains on Tutuila, where they captured footage of a nesting seabird. No bird inside, it was a little early in the breeding season. So we put a camera on it. We'll see what happened up here. So there's no bird inside, but I did find an eggshell. There's a lot of pictures on the camera. Jen's gonna start looking at now. Eggshells here. It's like it may have been possibly predated, which should not be surprising considering the number of predators that are here. Ah, I got something interesting actually on January 27th. You can see the burrow kind of on the left. Yeah. Check him out. Hey, hey, hello there, buddy. Well, that's a very clear Tahitian petrel. <laughs> Look at that's that snot. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so that was exciting. We got um, awesome footage of a Tahiti petrel. Unfortunately, no bird in the burrow. Um, but definitely the bird was here last night, so that's, that's really cool. Not much is known about the nocturnal seabird species. In 2018, it was classified as near-threatened after numbers dwindled due to an increase in introduced predators, threats at sea, and the impact of artificial lights on the island. Uh, ARC researchers have been working to find Tio burrows since 2020, work that was made more difficult by the fact that the bird only visits the most remote and densely vegetated mountaintops at night. Andre Rain is the science director for ARC. He spoke with the conversations Russell Subiano about the discovery. It's a medium-sized seabird that basically only comes into land at night, um, which makes it quite challenging to study, that, and also the fact that it's very rare, and they nest in holes in the ground. They look a bit like you know some of the seabirds that we get here in Hawaii, like the Hawaiian petrel, for example, but they are darker on top, and they have quite a big, thick beak, which is, packs quite a formidable punch if it bites you. So yeah, there's not a lot actually known about them, which again makes it a really interesting species to study, but it seems like they do a lot of surface gleanings. They pick prey off the surface when they're foraging out at sea, and then they're coming into these really remote areas, remote mountaintops, and nesting in little holes in the ground. So when you say that there's not a lot known about them, is that because there hasn't been time to do research about them or because no one has seen them for such a long period of time? Well, they're they're very cryptic. So, you know, this nocturnal thing only coming in at night on land makes them challenging. And then when they're at sea, they're spread out all over the vast open ocean. So mm-hmm. coupled with that, they're found in the equatorial Pacific. So they're found in areas like the Society Islands, Fiji, American Samoa. But they're poorly studied in these areas because of the areas that they're breeding in. So yeah, there's just there's there's not a lot known about their breeding seasons, about what they eat, where they breed. And so that was part of the project was to sort of come to grips with exactly what these birds are doing. If they still exist in American Samoa and Tutuila, um, you know, where do they breed and, and what is their breeding season even? How many are there? And so how did your organization become aware that they were in that area of American Samoa? 
Uh, there has been work done in the past. There was some seabird surveys done in the sort of 80s, and people later on had heard the birds calling in the mountains. They've got a very distinctive sort of shrieking, braying call. But actually pinning them down to a nest site has, has not been, no one's found those birds nesting on that island for almost 40 years now. And there was a, a PhD student who worked on the Montau, which is an island nearby in American Samoa, and he had actually located them on that island. But that's an even more remote island than where they are in, in Tutuila. And how did he locate them? Did he make a trip over to the island or, or was there some sort of, I, I imagine there's a lot more technology involved today than, than maybe there was you know, 40 years ago, how did they find the first burrow? Basically just going up to these mountains, you know, places where you think you might find them, listening for the birds' calls, and then trying to find them on the ground. And, and they're often in really dense vegetation. They don't want to be found, obviously. They're sort of well hidden. So it's just queuing in on these oral sounds to locate where the birds are. And that's kind of what we capitalized on was looking at the island as a whole, looking at areas where they're probably going to breed, which is the most remote mountain tops. And then deploying these acoustic sensors that you, you put them out and you leave them running for a couple of months and you collect them and you we send them to an organization called Conservation Metrics in California. They analyze the sounds and they say, well, there's a lot of calls in this area. There's not a lot of calls there. And that allows us to sort of narrow the search for where we might find them. I think a lot of people, when they see the headline or, or they read something that says, this is the first time these birds have been found in American Samoa in 40 years. I think the first thing they think about is whether they were endangered at some point or like hunted to the edge of extinction. Is that any part of the story of this bird? Well, they're, they're kind of like sort of the burrow nesting seabirds around the world, the same with Hawaii. So, you know, they would have been found across all these islands, all these island chains, probably from the coast up to the mountaintops. Mm -hmm. And then over time, when people arrive on the islands, people utilize them for, for food and for feathers and so on. But also we bring with us all sorts of invasive predators. And those are the really, you know, the really tricky ones, these birds, because they've evolved on these islands with no mammalian predators. And so things like cats and dogs and rats, they have no defenses for them. You know, they're sitting in a nest site, which is a burrow, a hole in the ground for months on end. All you need is one cat to get in there and it can dispatch an entire colony over time. Mm -hmm. So their sort of populations have dwindled and dwindled and sort of become more and more remote and, and more fragmented. And then they end up in areas where people just aren't going to because they're so challenging to get to. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization as well? Sure, yeah. We're, um, we're based in Hanapepe in Kauai, and we're an ecological consulting company. So we specialize on native bird species. We do a lot of work on seabirds, particularly endangered seabirds here on Kauai. So the A'o, the New Shearwater, and the U'a'u, the Hawaiian petrel. And we've been running now for a couple of years. We kind of started just as COVID was hitting, actually. Perhaps not the most opportune time to start, but it seemed like it was. And we, and we went ahead anyway, and here we are. How big is your staff? What other projects are you guys working on? We have a staff of about 16 people now. And a lot of the work that we do is looking into how to protect the endangered seabirds here on Kauai, both in terms of minimizing power line strikes, which is a big issue for them, and then protecting them in their montane colonies from you know, monitoring them and understanding how best to manage them. So a lot of our work is focused on, on that here on Kauai. But we have also helped out, been helping out on the island of Lanai with our Ua'u population. Uh, we've got this project in American Samoa. So we're sort of focused mainly on the Hawaiian Islands, but also branching out into the wider Pacific. What's the next step to giving these birds the best chance of thriving and rebuilding their numbers? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that we saw when we started putting out cameras in those mountains, and considering how remote these areas are, there are uh, so many cats and dogs up there in the mountains. You wouldn't think they are, but that's, you know, they're, they're, they're all over the place. And when we found the burrows, we actually found two cat-predated Tahiti petrels. So, you know, they're clearly impacting on these birds. So we've been discussing things with our local partners. We, we work with the Department of Marine and Wildlife Resources in American Samoa and the National Park Service of American Samoa. So I think the next step would be to think, okay, well, look, now we know where these birds are. This is where they are, and this is where they could be. So how can we go about protecting them by things like invasive predator control, thinking about ways to attract them to more protected areas? We do a lot of work with predator fencing and social attraction sites here on Hawaii. So just thinking about the best ways and most efficient ways to manage these populations and get them back into the numbers, which, you know, in the past, they would have been all over these islands. And we'll unfortunately never see those numbers again, but we can certainly do something to reverse these dramatic declines that they've faced in recent years. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners about the Ta'io or your conservation efforts more broadly? 
Well, I just think, you know, it's, it's, it's always good to think about these birds and think about the things they've done for our islands. So they're, um, you know, in the past when they would have been in the, in the millions on these islands spreading their guano, they, they're sort of instrumental to the building of all of these archipelagos in the Pacific, spreading plant seeds and, and fertilizing the, the watersheds that we rely upon. So, it, you know, when you start thinking about these fundamental keystone species that are disappearing from our islands and, and, and what sort of a gap that leaves, first, we need to appreciate them for all of the help they've given us in the past and then think about how to make sure that we don't lose them forever because they're incredibly special birds. The things they do are just amazing, being able to go out into the open ocean and catch these prey items that, you know, from the sky, diving down on these squid and fish finding their way back to the mountains in the dark and, and, and raising these a tiny chick in a small hole. They're amazing animals, and we need to make sure that they persist in the future. Andre, thanks so much for your time, and really appreciate you just educating our, our listeners about the Tahitian petrol. Yeah, thank you, Russell. I really appreciate your interest in, that, in this particular story, and hopefully we'll have more to come in the future. That was Archipelago Research and Conservation Science Director Andre Rain talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. They were talking about the recent discovery of burrows of the rare and elusive Taio, uh, or the Tahiti petrel, in American Samoa. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, a story to mark the 70th anniversary of the Korean armistice, which brought peace to the Korean peninsula, though it remains divided. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online on our website, or by searching for The Conversation Podcast on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.